Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 545. My name is Tim. I am your host. Uh, and if you're watching, you can see that this is once again a slightly different episode. I've got Dad joining me uh, right off the top in the studio. Uh, and that's because we are very excited to welcome our special guest, uh, returning guest, friend of the show, Dr. Bradley Jerzak. Hi, Brad. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Glad to We're- be with you. Glad to have you. Yeah, we're excited. So last week we had Brian uh, teaching us out of Matthew 24. Yep. And so this week you asked Brad to uh, to teach us out of Matthew 25. 25, yeah. I thought that would be a good order of things. <laughs> um, and uh, we're just delighted to have you. For those who are new to this podcast, uh, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel for 45 weeks now, um Brad is is one of my very dearest friends on the planet, uh, a great influence, a great help, and just a great friend. And we are really excited to have you with us today. I'm excited that we're going to have you and Eden at our home in May, and we'll talk about that later. But welcome uh, to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's it's. Uh, I'm looking forward to that conference as well. It's going to be some fun and really uplifting, I think. It's going to be amazing. Um, all right, so format today is slightly different. Uh, we've got three parables that Brad's going to be teaching us. Uh, so why don't we, Brad, why don't you uh, have a go at the first parable, and then we can maybe dialogue about that a little bit, uh, and then jump into the next one, and so on and so forth. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, so what I'm what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll lay this out first a little bit in that we do have three parables. The chapter the chapter is gathered together three parables following up on the Matthew 24 context. Um, a few premises that I'm working with. One is you always have a couple of layers going on with the Gospels in that Jesus is speaking to an immediate audience. In this case, you know, especially teachers of the law, scribes, Pharisees, the temple establishment, and whoever of his disciples is listening in. So, so you've got that immediate context of Jesus talking to people who actually are opponents of his. The second context you have in the gospel all the time is that you have a book, and it's a book written by Matthew that gathers the Jesus tradition and presents it to his disciples, his Christian community. And so what Jesus is doing with his words isn't exactly what Matthew is doing with Jesus' words, because they've got a different target audience, and that may give it a bit of a different tone, which could complicate things for us a a bit, but it makes it super interesting. So we have to ask, what is Jesus up to? And what is Matthew up to? And often it's the same thing, but uh, it's worth checking. Uh, Second, I don't believe that these are just three random parables thrown together, that they have been gathered for a purpose and and they interpret each other. In other words, there's things about each of the parables that I don't think we could interpret properly if if they weren't gathered with the other two. So, um, So when I say that, you know, we've got, we've, we can reverse engineer this passage for insight into, let's say, the criteria for judgment. What is the criteria for God's judgment in this in this chapter? Well, we've got three different examples, um, and so I'll look at that. But you know, we have to ask: on what basis are those uh, are, are the criteria in the parables in um, in the people? who are going to be included or excluded from God's kingdom. 
And uh, so in order, we've got three. One is you need to have sufficient oil. The second one is you need to have invested your gold properly. And three, you need to have shown mercy to the least of these. Well, that sounds very different. Uh, but what if these three criteria are really one? What if oil can represent mercy? What if investing or laying up treasures in heaven looks like almsgiving, which is about mercy? What if giving ourselves to the least of these and is ministering to Christ through mercy? And, and now you begin to see the parables working together in that way. And so, uh, and, and, and now this creates its own questions about, um, well, wait a minute, if I thought the criteria for judgment was, have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And uh, we would have preached that uh, in my early days hearing Baptist preachers, but somehow they'd switch over and tell oh, it's the parable of the talents. So make sure you join the choir. It's like, hang on a second. I think we've just done an exit ramp from Jesus point here. And are we really saying if you don't join the choir, you'll go to hell? What happened to, you know, faith in Jesus? So it's a complicated and long chapter. And I think we'd best then just jump into it and I'll see what we can do as takeaways. Um, I almost feel like saying, I'm not going to show you the meaning of this text. What I'm going to show you is things I noticed, and then we can talk about those. So I am going to begin with um, with David Bentley Hart's translation of Matthew 25. And, and again, these are three parables. If we take them too literally, um, we're going to also have an adventure in missing the point. Parable number one. I'm sharing my screen now. I want to make sure I open the right file. There we go. Matthew 25. Can you guys give me a nod if I've done that right? Okay. Well, we'll start with the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of the heavens shall be likened to ten virgins, who, taking their own lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five wise. For the foolish when taking the lamps, did not take oil with them. But the wise took oil in vessels along with their lamps. With the bridegroom taking a long time, however, they all grew drowsy and lay down to sleep. In the middle of the night, there was a cry. Lord, the bridegroom, look, the bridegroom, go out to meet him. Then all of those virgins were roused and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones answered by saying, surely there would not be enough for us and for you. Rather than that, go instead to the merchants and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone away to make their purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were prepared went in with him to the wedding celebrations and the door was shut. And afterward, the remaining virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But in reply, he said, amen, I tell you, or truly, I tell you, I do not know you. So be alert, for you do not know the day or the hour. Oh, my goodness, what a difficult parable. Um, you can just see that. I hope you could see how difficult it is to, to interpret something like this, because again, if we if we start taking this too literally, then we're going to paint ourselves into a corner. Um, probably 
you know, you've got you've got the question of who are the bridegrooms? Are these saved people and unsaved people, to use that language, or are they all virgins who are pure and righteous? But some of them just um, why do they all get sleepy and fall asleep? You know, and 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 what's the oil? And how do you get the oil? And where do you get the oil? So a million questions come up for us. And um, I think I think uh, I have I have some good news for you. <laughs> um, we do have a tradition um, about this that points us to the idea that the oil involved here is mercy. And that would match perfectly with the third parable of the sheep and goats, as we'll see. Um, but I, I wonder things. I like to wonder. I wonder, what does Jesus mean by keep watch? Uh, we usually associate keeping watch with staying ready spiritually for the coming of our bridegroom. Uh, whether he comes at the second coming, whenever that is, or more likely when we die, since all the virgins fall asleep, which is Jesus' favorite phrase for passing away. And why virgins? Aren't we the bride of Christ? And what are these lamps the virgins are carrying? What's the oil? Who sells the oil? How do you buy the oil? Why is having enough oil? The criteria for entrance into the wedding. And uh, do we somehow earn our way into the wedding banquet? So um, the more I study this parable, the less I know for sure. But I'm 100% certain that Jesus thinks having oil is really, really important. And so if we were to boil down this parable to, to just that one strict sense, instead of trying to make it an allegory where you have to figure out every detail, we just say this, what is his point? He tells you, the point is be ready. How do you be ready? Have oil. I think if we just stopped there, we'd be, we, we'd be doing well. Okay, so um, I, I'm aware that on the first reading, this is going to sound like buying your way into the kingdom of God or earning your salvation by good works. Um, stay with me, uh, but that's essential territory to cover. And it's a prerequisite to, prerequisite to understanding the, the, uh, the parable. So we mustn't miss what Jesus says or dismiss what he wants by prematurely filtering this through our like post-Easter gospel of grace. So first of all, in Second Temple Judaism, the mercy of almsgiving had become nearly synonymous with righteousness. How we treat the poor is how you demonstrate a life of righteousness. Um, oh, same word for justice, same word for charity, uh, Hebrew word, tzedakah. And so, uh, and Jesus himself does this in, in Matthew 6. He, showing mercy to the poor through almsgiving was like investing in your heavenly bank account. And the rabbis were riffing off passages like Proverbs 19, 17. It says, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. And so the Jewish teachers, they apply this to mean that when you give to the poor, when you care for the poor, when you do justice in this world, when you act in a merciful way in this life, your investment is returned by blessedness in the next life. I told you it gets tricky. It, sound, it sure sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? Well, it is works righteousness. 
whether works righteousness is amounts to faith in Jesus Christ is, is another matter. It's it, you have a clear call that we're meant to take care of the poor in this way. And so um, it's sort of like Jesus is, is using this same idea of capital investments in heaven. When he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, how by practicing righteousness through almsgiving to the needy. That's Matthew six, one to four, super clear. It's also clear that one layer of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus identifies treatment of the poor with, with our post-mortem reality. But I want to just zero in again on this idea of oil and mercy. And, um, and, and so with this background of almsgiving and righteousness and entering the kingdom, we come back to the parable. And I would, I would propose this, that in, that, um, that we identify the oil as mercy. And I want to show you why using some puns. And I think I can share my screen about a word study I did. Share screen. There we go. So there is a linguistic connection between mercy and oil. And, um, and I'll just show you some of the puns here. Okay. So here we have mercy is a noun for it's elios in Greek. And when you think about the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are merciful, they will obtain, receive mercy. They'll show mercy, and that's a verb, showing mercy. Eleo, or elieo, uh, have mercy upon, have mercy on, have mercy upon, obtain mercy, receive mercy, show mercy, found mercy, had mercy, has mercy. You know, it's, it's all about that, okay? So we got a noun, elios, and a verb, elieo. Now, check this out. Uh, the word for olive or olive berries or olive trees or olives, elion or elion. It's very close. And so that could be the tree itself. It could be the, the berries from the tree. It could be the, the oil from the tree, elion. And because you're getting from olives, you're getting olive oil, then this word oil comes and it's elion. Lamp oil, healing oil, anointing oil, olive oil, all elion. So in the, in the early church, and even in Judaism prior to that, when they use Greek, do you see the obvious similarity? So I've written this out. Elios, elio, elion, mercy, show mercy, olive, olive oil, oil, lamp oil. And a lot of times similarities between words don't mean anything. <laughs> they're just sound alikes and there's no connection but other words they they do have a connection and so um uh the, the where it's possible that the word mercy actually came out of the word for these olive trees because olive trees were just incredibly generous they they produce so much oil so much good fruit, so much soap, so much all of the things you'd use. But um, Archbishop Lazar says he actually thinks it was the other way around. He thinks olive trees were named after mercy. And there's this connection between the mercy of God, the generosity and the grace of God, um, and the generosity and, and how productive a, a, an olive tree could be. And this is why it's just it's just really so tragic when we see um, 
uh, settlers, for example, in the West Bank, destroying olive groves that have been there for 300 years that are a livelihood of a family. You know, it's, it's almost... It's almost like a, a, a sacred wound that happens. Okay, so back to the oil and mercy connection in, a, in, in Judaism and Christianity. This super abundant mercy of God is identified by another word, polyelios, which means much oil or much mercy. And, and in, in the church tradition I come from, the polyelios also refers to the part of our prayer services on feast days, when we have these big chandeliers run by lamp oil, and we light up all the lamps and you start swinging the chandelier around while we chant Psalm 135, Psalm 136, um, about his mercy endures forever. For how long? Forever. Forever. And so um, um, I think I think I think if instead of getting bogged down in all the details of the parable, if we would just just hear this, be ready for the Lord whenever that is, whether it's 80, 70, whether it's today as he's going to appear in your life through the poor, whether it's at your death or at some forthcoming, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just be ready by having a life filled with mercy. And I will add one footnote to that. Where do you get it? He says, um, go down to the city to get it. Who, where do we obtain the oil of mercy? We obtain the oil of mercy by offering mercy. And I, I get the sense that there, we could have a clue here that we're to look for, that we're to look for mercy in the highways and the byways on the street corners and behind the hedges in all the places that impact nations goes to. So how, how can I, and that's again, connected to almsgiving, to care for the poor, to doing justice in the world. That's how you obtain the oil of mercy. And that's how you prepare yourself to meet the Lord, which again, we'll see later in the chapter. So let's pause there. And I just hear what, I want to hear what you guys are hearing. Uh, over to you now. Well, my first thought, just based on what you just said moments ago, I find it fascinating that in that word study you did on the Greek for the verb to show mercy, it's the same verb for to receive mercy and to show mercy. It's like there's an exchange or there's a, I don't know if transaction is the right word, but there's, they happen at the same time and it's causal. It's, they are so related, those two concepts of showing mercy and receiving mercy. Is it, do we show mercy because we have received mercy? Do we receive mercy because we have shown mercy? Uh, but it seems like they are directly connected all the time. And one will lead to the other. I remember when I was uh, studying for that book on the Beatitudes that you wrote the foreword for, that of all the Beatitudes, the mercy one is the only one that is directly reciprocal. Those who show mercy, receive mercy. There's, there's different cause and effects in the others, but that's exactly equal. The other thing that you brought up, which, which I looked at before and just kind of passed over it, is they got sleepy. It's the middle of the night. And then he says, we'll go into town and get more oil. Or they say, go into town, get more oil. And I'm thinking, yeah, but it's four in the morning. <laughs> you know, no matter how good the business is, probably four o'clock isn't your prime time. 
and um, it, it, and so you go into town. I like that. Mm-hmm. You go into town. I, I you know, I, I I've been so convinced for so long that uh, only um, if we are among the poor and the needy and the broken does God change our heart. Yeah. Not by doing a Bible study on mercy. Yeah. And um, so I really appreciate you bringing that out. You do have the connection. There is one hint here elsewhere where he's excluding, he says, I never knew you. And mm-hmm. he does use that elsewhere, doesn't he? Uh, where, yeah. And in specifically, he's talking to ministers yep. who have done healing ministries, deliverance ministries, you name it. And he's like, I, I don't know you. Um Depart from me, you evildoers. Um, so that's interesting because he, although they were identified themselves who, as powerful, charismatic ministers of the gospel, um, the parallel in the same gospel that I never knew you, that, that evildoing is somehow even doing ministry that's disconnected now from a life of sharing mercy with the poor. Yeah, wow. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's a really important clue. Uh, and the and then the other one is this that this idea of obtain mercy. Gregory of Nyssa, when he when he preaches on the on the Beatitudes, he says that you know there's actually two layers to this. So a, a literal reading of be merciful so you will obtain mercy it means I'll be merciful to you, and God will be merciful to me. That so that's completely transactional, and mm-hmm. and that counts. But he says a spiritual reading of obtaining mercy goes further. And it says, if you do mercies, you will become merciful. In other words, obtaining mercy into your character so that you become Christ-like. And I I think that's Hmm. interesting. Yeah, Yeah, it's very good. Uh, Brad, just before we move on to the next parable, can I ask you a Bible study question? And you and I have talked about this a little bit before in our various exchanges in this space and over email and text and stuff. But uh, you mentioned something a few minutes ago about being careful not to take this too literally as a parable and not to uh, read it as allegory, where whereby you need to find, you know, every every subject in here has an analog, you know, where we, okay, so the virgins equal this, the oil equals this, all those things. Is that, should we always approach parables that way? Are there times when that is appropriate? How do we... Uh, how? What's the general rule for approaching Jesus' parables when it comes to interpretation? <laughs> yeah, that's. I, it, it's a. Uh, it's complex, but I'll just tell you the complexity quickly. Sure. When you're hearing Jesus share a parable, just look for one point. That's okay. the general rule. Okay. But when you're reading Matthew telling you about it, sometimes <laughs> <Yeah>. Matthew, <laughs> the the author may be. Um, may be instigating a kind of allegorical reading. So, of course, we should ask, like, who's the bridegroom? Well, it's kind of Jesus, although in Matthew's parables, the bridegroom, the master, the king, the landover owner is not always entirely Christ-like. So you have to remember, we're still hearing a story. Yeah, Jesus is telling us a story. And so why we resist over-allegorizing it is so that you don't make a direct equation. Well, the king is vengeful, therefore God is vengeful. No, uh, that's not the point. That's not and, the point. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we'd go, well, who, you know, um, who are the virgins? I think the, the, the way to go with that is just like we are. Whoever is listening, 
let the parable let the parable come into your heart and um and so so yeah while we look for one big point and not get overly bogged down i just want to do due diligence and and say that scholars like jeremiah um he he said you know sometimes the author is doing is doing a bit of allegorizing and that's okay for the sake of his community yeah awesome let's jump into the next one let's do it yep I'm I'm going to intentionally not take so much time with this one, but we'll read it. For just as a man leaving home in a journey summoned his own slaves and handed his possessions over to him and gave five talents to one, two to another, and one to another, to each according to his particular ability, and left home on his journey. Immediately, the one who received five talents employed them in trade, gained another five. Similarly, the one who had gained two uh, gained another two. But the one who received one went away, dug it into the ground, hid his master's silver. Then after a long time, the master of those slaves comes and settles accounts with him. In approaching, the one receiving the five talents brought the other five talents forward, saying, Master, you handed five talents to me. Look, I gained another five talents. His mercy, his master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy servant. You were trustworthy over a few things, I will place you over many, enter into your master's delight. Also approaching, the one with two talents said, look, I gained another two talents. His master said, well done, good and trustworthy servant. You were trustworthy over a few things, I shall place you over many, enter into your master's delight. And also approaching, the one who had received one talent said, master, listen carefully to this guy's broken image of God. Hmm. I knew you that you are a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering from where you did not scatter. And being afraid, I went away and hid your talent in the earth. See, you have what is yours. But in reply, his master said to him, you wicked and timorous slave. Did you know that I reap where I did not sow and gather from where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have placed my silver pieces with placed pieces with the bankers. And when I came, I would have recovered what was mine with interest. Therefore, take the talent away from him. Give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, it will be given away and, and should be more than is needed. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and throw the useless slave into the darkness outside. There will be weeping and grinding of teeth there. It's not meant to be a question mark there. Um. So there's a couple really interesting things happening here. Uh, no, this is not about if you don't join the choir, you'll go to hell. <laughs> um, but we do have to ask, what are the talents? I don't know if we would know, except that we've already seen that the oil was mercy. And then you can just start saying, okay, boil this down. What's the big point? What God has given to you, invest, pay it forward. Okay, what has God given to us? Oh, mercy. We already read that part. He's given us mercy and grace into our lives. And and how do you invest it? Lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. How? Again, it's, it's care for the poor, extending, extending your life on behalf of the other. Um, we'll see it in more detail in the next parable where he just finally gives you the full punchline. But let's just say this. 
think about the talents and the and, and the oil as parallels in these passages. Think about um, exclusion and grief and remorse when we come to when we come to see that we squandered what was given to us. And so is weeping and gnashing of teeth um, about eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire? It simply doesn't say that, but it does, it does express a kind of grief. And when we see, when we see uh, what we could have shared, it's a little bit like the end of Schindler's list, you know, where, Liam Neeson is playing the part of this guy who realizes he realizes what he could have given that he didn't. And he is not tormented by anything other than his conscience, which in, in, uh, in, uh, in an Orthodox view, that is actually the tormentor. It's your own conscience and co- tormenting you for what, uh, for, for failing to invest the mercy and grace we've been given uh, for the other. Is there anything else I wanted to say about this? Oh yeah. One more thing, this broken image of God. Now imagine this, if God, if it, if, if it were God, remember, it's not exactly straight across, but he's making a point. If it were God, and if he can reap where he didn't sow, then why are you afraid to invest? Because you could just, I, I could make a parable where I have a fourth slave who comes in and says, look at, I invested your the talents you gave me and I lost it all. Like I have nothing to, I, I gave it away and I nothing came back. So I have nothing to give you. And then the master would say, yes, enter the joy of the Lord because I can reap where I haven't sown. Why don't we have that force? come in? Why doesn't Jesus say that? Well, here's why. Because you can't reap and not, you can't sow and not reap. That's a spiritual impossibility. Whatever you sow in the spirit, you will reap in the spirit. It's a guarantee. And so have no fear because even if, even if you gave it all, um, you, you would, you would see, you would see an outpouring of grace. So um, over to you guys now because we're going to take a bit more time on the third parable, but that's really all I think we need to say about this one. But you may, you may have some thoughts I didn't have. I'm no, I, that was beautiful. I love the simplicity of that. I love that again, because we can approach this and say, what's the, what's the big point? We don't have to say, Oh, okay. Well, if Jesus is painting a picture of the master like this, or, and actually Jesus isn't, Jesus is painting a picture of, of an understanding of the master like this doesn't actually really bother to correct it as far as I can see in this parable. And yet that's not the point. Like we don't have to take away from, okay, well, this goofy servant who, you know, buried his talent in the dirt, uh, he's clearly got a better understanding of God than the picture of Jesus that we get in the gospels. So we're going to, we're going to, roll with that interpretation of God the Father instead of the person of Jesus. Uh, I, that's That in and of itself is huge for me to take away. That's great. Just so I understand that I've really plumbed the depths of your point, if uh, what you said about not singing in the choir, um, does that also apply to not being on the welcome team? <laughs> 
Well, you know, uh, there are some sins of omission. (laughs) Pretty serious, but we'll see those in the third parable. Um, If the welcome team is not hospitable to the other and turns into a bouncer at the door, then Uh actually, seriously, you better watch out. Mm. And so, you know me, I'm all about like, I I have this incredible hope of ultimate restoration, but that must never remove the teeth from these penultimate warnings. So let me explain that for a moment. Penultimate means second last. Mm -hmm. Just because I believe that mercy gets the last word and that mercy triumphs over judgment doesn't mean there's not a judgment. It just means the judgment isn't the last word. And the judgment is is being laid out here for the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law and the temple hierarchy. And says there's a judgment coming because you have corrupted this temple. And I think that's still supposed to land on us. And I don't know the nature of that judgment. I don't know how much of that judgment happens in this life. And how much of that judgment happens at the last judgment? But I do know this. um, There's a judgment where we give an account. Jesus is saying so. And no matter what we believe about grace, we don't get to erase this chapter and fix it because it's a bit scary. Hmm. The best we can do is say, thank God that mercy triumphs over judgment in the end. But um, And so if you're on the welcoming team, if you think that means being a bouncer, probably should resign, you know? <laughs> Go join the if choir. <laughs> it, if it means uh, showing a kind of hospitality that does include keeping those safe, like the children. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Work work that out carefully. But it's funny that you brought it up as a, as a, as a joke because I was thinking of it the funny way too. Like, wait a minute. Uh-oh. Well, the, Let's go to the next parable, unless you have any last words or questions, comments. No, let her rip. Go for it. All right, let her rip. Here we go. This is the this is the intense one, guys. Thank God that we can take this literally and only farm animals are in danger. Because it's not about people, it's about sheep and goats. No, that's not right. It is about people, but it is a parable. So he uses sheep and goats. When the son of man comes in his glory. So this is a question. When does the son of man come in his glory? And again, you know, we've just read chapter 24 where he comes in his glory in a sense uh, with the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, He comes again in his glory at the very end for a final judgment. Um, He comes again in his glory uh, at my death comes again in his glory whenever the poor are in front of me and he even comes in his glory in john when he's hanging on a cross so this is that's a slippery phrase but i think we're i think we're meant to have an existential awareness that means like that i am always living before his coming and no i actually don't think We're all going to be raptured away and that Armageddon will come next week. But this very day, I meant to to live my life as the one standing in the presence of the judge because they were, you know. 
So when does the son of man come in his glory in Matthew 24 or in Matthew 25? In that moment, when Jesus is talking, he, they don't realize they're in that moment. Their response to him is the verdict. And all his angels with him, and then he will sit on his throne of glory, and all the nations will be assembled before him. He will separate them from one another. Um, we used to have silly notions of this, probably. It's like, okay, which nations will he separate from which nations? Well, America, that they'll be sheep, and they get to go on one side, and Iran will be the goats, and they'll no, it's not that. It's not that. It's it's all the all the nations of the world, the peoples of the world will gather together as a shepherd separates sheep from the kid goats, uh, and will set the sheep on his right, the kid goats on the left. Then the king will say to those to his right, "Come, you blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the cosmos. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat; thirsty, you gave me to drink; I was a stranger, you gave me hospitality." Naked and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to me. Isn't it odd that he doesn't say, and you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? It's, for, it's not creedal, or we could say our creed is in how we respond to Jesus when he comes to us in this guise. Then the just will answer him saying, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty, and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger, give you hospitality, or naked, and clothe you? When did we see you ill, or in prison, and come to you? And in reply, the king will say, amen, or truly, I tell you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brother, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Go from me, you execrable ones. <laughs> David Bentley Hart's translation is a bit funny. Uh, execrable means um, worthy of being cursed. Into the fire of the age. That's an interesting translation, but accurate. And we'll get come to that in a minute. Prepared for the slanderer and his angels. For I was hungry, you did not give me anything to eat. I was thirsty, you did not give me to drink. I was a stranger, you did not give me hospitality. Naked, and you did not clothe me, ill and in prison, you did not look after me. Then they too will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, or naked, a stranger, naked, ill, or in prison, and did not attend to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I tell you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these my brothers, neither did you do it to me. And these will go into the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Oy, we've got a lot to look at here, and it's a heavy word. So just very briefly, some of, the, some of the poor teachings we had on this, there were those who said, uh, in, when I was a child, I would hear preachers say, actually, this, is, this can't be about the final judgment um, of when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to see whether our robes have been washed in the blood of the lamb. This is about the nations and how they treat Israel uh, during the great tribulation. It's like, what? <laughs> how did we come to that? And, and they would say, well, it says, it's how you treat the least of these, my brothers. So that's the Jews, right? And so we, we created this very strange narrative, and it, it was an, a very, very recent invention that we would somehow separate this judgment from the final judgment 
when in fact he does say the son of man comes in his glory. So that's a little, it, it, it was, it was just a very strange thing and how, how nation states would treat the people of God um, or, or the Jewish specifically the Jewish people in the nation state of Israel. So it was a Zionistic reading of it. So that was, that was one issue. Um, um, I, th- I think though, we, we need to, we just need to be clear that, you know what, the criteria of judgment across the whole new Testament, I believe every single instance, it, it actually is a judgment of deeds. And in this one, um, there's not even a judgment of evil deeds. Every single thing there is an, a sin of omission. It's, he doesn't say, uh, okay, goats, you on the left, because you, you, um, you were sexual deviants, and you were hateful murderers, and you were, you know, and like he just doesn't do even the fruit of the flesh from Galatians 5. The, in, the entire criteria in this case are the things you didn't do when you could have. So that's troubling, and it's meant to be. Um, so here, here we see the punchline. What does the oil look like? What are the talents that we're to invest? Um, it looks like feeding hungry people, giving drink to thirsty people giving hospitality to refugees and to displaced persons and, and to immigrants. It looks like clothing naked people and getting medicine to sick people and going to visit prisoners, even if they're guilty. And so, so this seems to be then the punchline of what's the oil punchline of what's the talents comes into clearest focus in, in this and he is he's he's treating with like ultimate importance. All right, now let's before we rush into what does this mean to us, it, let's first of all say what is it what does it mean as Jesus is saying it to his opponents? Well, it is his indictment of the temple establishment and especially how the Sanhedrin was loaded up with aristocrats who used their position in the religious system as a, as opportunity for exploitation it was absolutely corrupted and and so what he's wanting to do it's not so much about the nature of the final judgment at all all three parables are about this um it is a, the ethical standards that they have violated and he's calling them to account so instead of saying is chapter 25 about the end times no Chapter 25 is what are the ethics of the kingdom of God? What do they, what do they, when you're held to account by the king of the kingdom, what is it that, uh, what, what is this ethical system? So then if we go to Matthew, why did he write this a generation later for his church? Because he's forming a community of Christian people who need to be um, God, an expression of the kingdom of God in this world. And they need to know in their spiritual formation, what matters and what, in fact, what matters most. And, and so it's like, wow, Matthew thinks that Jesus parables here 
the three parables of mercy are central to his gospel. And, and that caring for the poor is not like, well, first do evangelism. And then if you have money left over, then you can go care for the poor. It's like, um, or first understand the gospel and then see how caring for the poor is a corollary. No, <laughs> in Luke chapter four, when Jesus identifies his gospel, it is all this stuff. Spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, you know, and, and, and that's intrinsic to his gospel. And Matthew still thinks so, so much so that he's willing to paint you a picture. It's a, imagine being at the final judgment. I wonder what will matter to Jesus. Well, let me tell you now, because that's what will matter for us now as a church and what should have mattered to the temple by those who had corrupted it and will see it destroyed as we saw in Matthew 24. So that's, uh, so should, does this mean you don't need to take up your cross and follow Jesus? It's like, no, it defines it though. It shows you what taking up your cross and following Jesus will entail and where to look for him as, as you're advancing his kingdom. And so this is not meant to be in opposition to faith in Jesus. It's meant to saying it's not so simple to di divorce Jesus from the poor. First John says this, you know, like, and James, it's like, how do you love an invisible God? Or how do you love a Jesus you can't see? Well, you can see him. Well, where? Let me tell you, you know, down in the city or over in the slums or, and so He's wanting to, in that sense, I do think it's a faith righteousness. It's not works righteousness. It is faith in Jesus Christ produces these works. And it's remarkable that there are surprised people. There are people who actually will have embraced Jesus and not even known it. They're like, when did we, when, you know, it's not like they tried to do this. It's like, we just lived this way. And he said, good, that counts. And then there's others who've actually claimed his name that, that um, turn out to have rejected him when he visited them in person. So how do you receive Jesus into your heart? Well, you welcome these people into your life. How do you chase Jesus out of your church? I'll tell you, when we've planted fresh wind, we had people come from the care homes with folks with disabilities who had been kicked out of nine churches. It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that's the that's a fast way to expelling Christ from your midst. Don't tell me let you, that you're singing, let your glory fall on this room while you're barring the door from people because they might have a seizure. Like that's, <laughs> um, so, so I think as G, you can, I can be passionate about that. I think, I think these parables are meant to, are meant to have teeth for that. And, and yes, grace will get the final word, but that will come through a judgment where we have to face up to all these places where I failed to do this stuff. Um, two more points. One is it didn't take long before the early church realized on any given day, I could be a sheep or a goat. So it's not so much who are the sheep people and who are the goat people. It was the sheep and goats are in my own heart. And that's what needs to be purged. 
um, the false self of greed is a goat that needs to be purged from me. Those attachments to worldly, um, my worldly obsessions and possessions. Um, and, and other days I'm a sheep. And he's like, be a sheep. So it's not so much like, are you a sheep or are you a goat? Depends on the day. It's like, don't be a goat, be a sheep. And, and um, so I think even by the second century, they were having to think it through this way because they realized that we, you know, we're not consistent. And so when you identify goatness in your life, repent. And so there's a, there's a daily Orthodox prayer about this. It says, suddenly the judge shall come. And we cry out in the middle of the night, holy, holy, holy God, you know, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. So you, you actually pray for the oil of mercy at that point. He's like, well, glad you're praying this now in the middle of the night. Let's talk about how you spend tomorrow morning, you know. Last point. A lot of our trend, let's go back to the, boy, okay. Um, In many of your translations, it's going to say that the unrighteous go into eternal punishment. And David Bentley Hart is trying to correct that mistranslation. So had Clement of Alexandria in the second end of the second century, he was already addressing this problem, eternal and punishment. So the word for in, in many of our Bibles that says eternal, the Greek term is ionios, which is not eternal. It can be, it can mean eternal sometimes it, well, not eternal, everlasting, everlasting. It can also mean a long period of time or even a set period of time. Many times in the Bible, um, it will, I, Ionios is like an age, an, an age long period, and it can be a long age, but finite. So, so to just automatically translate this everlasting, everlasting punishment is, is a presumption. And it's one that Hart, but also Clement addressed. The other is this term punishment. Is that the best term? So, so Hart has, has used the word chastening, chastening. Why does he do that? Well, here we go. The word chastening, the Greek term here, I'm going to, I think you can see that, is the term kalasis. And this is from the footnotes in his Bible, although you can see this in other books. So in his translation, he says, the word kalasis originally meant pruning or docking or obviating the growth of trees or other plants. Pruning. Hmm. So what if the goats need pruning out of my heart, right? And then it came to mean confinement or being held in check. And then it could even mean punishment or chastisement, but mainly with the connotation of correction. It's not just retribution, it's correction. Chastisement is a very good word for it. Classically, the word, word was distinguished by Aristotle, for instance, from Another Greek word, timoria, which means retributive punishment only. So payback. Just I'm going to harm you to to hurt. I'm going as you know. That's what that's what it's about. So whether the that distinction holds here is difficult to say. Because um, by by late antiquity, Colossus seems to have been used by many to describe punishment of any kind, but. 
the only other use of the word colossus as a noun in the New Testament is 1 John 4.18, where it's not retributive punishment. It's about the suffering you experience if you're afraid, if you're not perfected in love. Oh, that's a parallel to this, isn't it? If you're not perfected in love, if you're not showing mercy, if you're if you don't have the righteousness of charity, what will happen? Your conscience will torment you and correct you and call you back to the Father's house and to the life of Christ. Uh, there's a verb form of the same thing, kaladzo, and that's twice in the Bible. Um, Acts 4, where it's about disciplinary punishment, and 2 Peter 2, where that's about fallen angels and unrighteous men, and that's more like that they're confined, they're confined. And then so Clement, um, I've got some quotes by him about this as well, but he, I won't read them all, but he, he said, he, when he uses the term, he says, Colossus is about needful corrections by converting by penalties. Um, par, uh, by chastisements. And, and he says, but God does not punish Timaria for punishment. Timaria is retaliation for evil. He chastises, however, for good to those who are chastised collectively and individually. And so that guy, you know, he's, he's living about 100 years after the apostle John. And I think he would know his Greek fairly well. So uh, what am I saying? Well, this, this just leads us up to that the three parables bring us to a call to donate to impact nations so that you don't have to go care for poor people yourself. Does that sound right? No, no, that's, that's in the parable, the talents that that's what Jesus, or no, that's what the master, that's what the entrepreneur is saying, look, if you're not going to care for people yourself and show them mercy, at least send your money to impact nations, they'll get the reward. But like, that's not it. It's like, you, you need to sort out who are the poor in your life. And, and this is of such ultimate import that I'm even going to frame it inside the final judgment. But it's not about the final judgment It's about how we will live today as a community of faith. I will stop there and just uh, uh, see what uh, how you'd like to chat about this a little Very bit more. Good. I, I, well, I'm going to jump in. Go. Because I'm older than you. I'm aware of your time, Brad. I know you, you got to go teach a class in just a moment. I just so. want to highlight a couple of things real quickly. Um, and I can stay as you do that. Yeah. Because, um, okay, two things. 1 Corinthians 3. Again, this isn't retributive, but but purifying judgment that there is a judgment coming, and and the fire of God is going to come, that consuming fire, which is the love of God, and it is going to burn up the wood, hay, and stubble. It is going to burn up uh, the, the part of my life I've lived as a goat. So I'm just underlining that. But the second one I'd like you to touch on very briefly because, of course, some of the pushback that, that you and I get on this is, yeah, but what about Romans 10.9? All you got to do is, you know, confess and believe and you're home free. In my opinion, and I think clearly um, a true confession and a true belief brings forth the fruit 
of that belief and confession, and that takes us to Matthew 25. Do you want to say anything to clarify that? or, or? Yeah, I would make them, I, I just, I would do what I can to, you know, to, to, to melt or dissolve our distinction between faith mm. in Christ as a confession mm-hmm. and, uh, of the mouth and faith in Christ as a confession with our lives. And I think the New Testament, while it talks about both, it it really tries not to divorce them. And you even see this in, in the, um, let's say, in the, in the Beatitudes, just after the Beatitudes, it's like he, he just shares what a Christ-like life looks like, what taking up your cross to follow Jesus looks like. It almost, it's almost like, I'm, I'm going to confess this with my mouth and my life. And why would we divorce it? Well, we mm-hmm. sure did, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. You know, or tried to. So does that kind of answer your yeah, question? That's, or? that's good. I just wanted to underline that because I'm sure you get that and I get that. And the two are not separate. They, it's James. If you've got faith, it's got to be expressed, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. James uses a Greek word that is, it's a synergy of um, the, what we do with our mouths and what we do with our lives is to be a synergy. And, mm-hmm. and he, and so it's like, do I need to receive Jesus? Yes. <laughs> That's what the parable, the sheep and goats is about. You need to receive Jesus, even if you are unaware that you're doing it. <laughs> so, hmm. Very good. and should you go get baptized and then join a congregation? Uh, of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, he, Jesus said to do that too. I, so we get these weird either, either or things. It's like, well, if it's this, then it can't be that. It's like, why? <laughs> do what Jesus says. Get baptized, make disciples, feed the poor. Um, <laughs> separating them feels weird. And the impulse to do so is, a, is goatly. 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 There's a there is a I've, good. I've adverb. heard several variations of the word goat today that I'm a very excited goatly about. Goatly impulse. That's the goatishness of my heart. Lord, <laughs> chastise me. Yeah, indeed. Brad, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you've got to get going to another class. Isaiah, I'll ask you to just keep rolling after we've said bye to Brad, just so we can uh, wrap the episode up. But uh, well, I hope Brad, I didn't screw it all up. Oh, um, no, you know. it's fantastic. And I, I can't wait for you to come be with us and made us screw it up even more. Oh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. I'm, I'm happy to do that. We'll see you then. Absolutely. Have Thanks, a good Brad. one. Bless you. Thanks. Um, I, I wanted to take just a few moments in case, like I said last week, if, if you're just crawling out of a cave and didn't know, Brad, uh, along with Brian uh, and Charith Nordling, are going to be in town in May. And, you know, we've just, again, heard an hour of t- teaching of just making this stuff so uh, accessible. Things yeah. that uh, have at times, when you approach some of these parables, you we almost make them more dense than they ought to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, these guys have just an amazing ability to um, to serve it up in a way that you go, oh, oh, that's actually, that's pretty simple, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sure appreciate them. Uh, anything, anything else you wanted to add before we wrap up today? 
No, I don't think so. I, you can see why we're so excited to have these Indeed. folks yeah. because uh, it, it feels like the Lord has had us all on such a similar, yeah. similar journey. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you and I have asked the question many a time in our various formats, you know, how big is the gospel? Yeah. And we've come back to how beautiful is yeah. your gospel. Yeah. And uh, I think that people here are getting a, a bit of a taste of uh, why, why we so much want to bring people together, yeah. not to put notes in a notebook, but to have paradigms shifted and enlarged, yeah. mm-hmm. and that we would go back to our various nations and cities beginning to carry something new. Yeah. Um, you know, I've, I've had questions coming my way quite a bit in recent weeks asking, are we going to be broadcasting? Are we going to be streaming the conference uh, in May, May 11 to 14? The answer is no. And the reason for that is because we it's really important to us that you're here. Yeah. We really want to see everybody come, be together. Uh, we believe the Lord has something for us in this place, uh, sacred space. You've heard us talk about it here before, but uh, I, I know I've, I've been talking with our uh, our worship leader, Mike Marshall, who's really excited to be leading us into sacred spaces. And I know that, that Cherith has talked a lot about that. We want to provide a place to just... Uh, rest in the Lord's presence, to meditate on his goodness, on the beauty of his gospel, uh, and then to have time to exchange with one another uh, our experiences with the person of Jesus, to to express some of these paradigm shifts, because we know that it doesn't, it won't really sink in and actually begin to transform our daily lives until we begin to profess it and declare it to one another and say, this is this is revelation that I've gained, and I want yep. to tell you about it. Yep. So it's really important you're here. So uh, again, if you haven't registered yet, uh, you're not out of time, but you, clock's ticking. Uh, you missed your March 1st deadline for getting in on that uh, $100 gift certificate for uh, merchandise at the conference, but that's okay. Uh, do register before April 1st because you're going to save a few bucks. Uh, there's an early registration deadline of April 1st. Uh, beautifulgospelconference.com, uh, and you can read all about the conference. You can read Brad's bio, Cherith's. Uh, and and Brian's and uh, you can see the full schedule so you can see exactly it is jam-packed we're going from Wednesday night uh, right through to Saturday at around noon uh, and you can register right there. Uh, there's a link to the hotel if you're coming from out of town. You can. We've got special rates booked at the hotel and stuff. So beautifulgospelconference.com. Head there today. Don't delay. Uh, and come on out. We can't wait to be with you. Uh, and otherwise, we will see you again next Thursday uh, where. I happen to suspect that we will be jumping into Matthew chapter 26. Can't Uh, fool you. (laughs) uh, We are here every Thursday at 6 p.m. Mountain Time on the YouTube and the Facebook. Uh, And we've also got an audio recording of this that goes out uh, to our podcast feed. So just head to your favorite podcast app, search for the Impact Nations podcast, and uh, you can subscribe to that so that the audio is delivered right to your device and you can listen to that on your way to work. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you again next week. God God bless.